Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 25th episode, I have a special guest and an old acquaintance on, Anna Hepler. I met her 10 years ago, and it was a great, fun conversation. We talked all about Hozo paper and plastic and all types of art making. Really great artists, really interesting stuff. Please stay tuned and check it out. Welcome to Studio Break. Um, I'm David Linaway, and I'm here with Anna Hepler. How are you this morning? I'm good. Thank you, Dave. Um, I'm, and again, we, I've probably reiterated this enough, but um, it's really exciting to kind of especially realize that this is about 10 years since I've, I've met you um, when you were a visiting artist at ISU and um, showed all sorts of fun slides of uh, uh, doorbell ringers. Um, from your various trips and, and all sorts of stuff, but we'll have plenty of time to talk about that. So it's, it's great to have you. Thank you. Um, it's great to be here. And so I, it's always stale, um, for, for repetition for people listening, but, um, I always like to start out kind of at the same place in terms of just kind of getting a little bit of a background into, uh, little Anna and, um, maybe what that was like and, you know, where you grew up from and, and some of those experiences and maybe some childhood interests and, and things like that. You mean like biographical stuff? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Wow. I don't usually talk about that, um, but oh, no. I'm happy to. <laughs> uh, okay. I, I grew up in mostly, I should say, in Western Mass, um, child of an academic, so there was a little bit of movement there at the beginning. And uh, I grew up in sort of rural um, Western Mass on a fairly large piece of land. Um, and I spent a lot of time in the woods and just kind of happily bumming around. Um, and uh, let's see, my parents are, are both very much um, do-it-yourself, uh, crafty, um, food-producing beekeeper, wood chopping, you know, types of people. So I feel like I had this really wonderful early glimpse into the importance of making, but in a very functional sense. So um, my education definitely through spinning, <laughs> I was going to sound totally like Little House on the Prairie, and it wasn't really like that, but I did definitely sign up for all of my mother's different craft activities. So, you know, dipping candles, spinning right. wool, dyeing wool naturally, you know, just all of that stuff, making yogurt, it all happens there with my parents. So I think for me, the making was always like a, a confidence place because I knew how to do a bunch of stuff that other people um, didn't necessarily know how to do. It was like a place of real, um, strength for me. And I always loved it. Um, you know, I knit my first sweater when I was 11 and, uh, I just, things like that. I was just totally into it. So that's my childhood. I have two siblings. Uh, I'm in the middle and, um, uh, my parents are still in the same location and still doing most of the same things, even though they're in their seventies. So that's pretty awesome. Um, and then, shall I continue? Oh, no, I, th I think, I mean, again, I mean, those those things will kind of be expanded upon, but, um, yeah. well, especially kind of, kind of with this next question. So then, um, did you wind up then kind of going through a, a pretty, I guess, formal education then, too, as well, like in terms of taking yeah, art class I mean, in high school, school and that? And then I went to Oberlin College. I had, I, um, I knew that I, even though I felt 
very focused on doing visual artwork, even in high school, I didn't feel confident that that was, that I wanted to narrow my field of interest too soon. So I, I wanted to go to a liberal arts college where I could try other things as well. And I ended up doing a history minor and then a visual arts major there at Oberlin. Um, I went straight to graduate school um, because I felt like in my first year, my second year at Oberlin, I got so into letterpress printing, which I wasn't learning there, actually. I dropped out to, to do an internship with someone, and then bookbinding, and very much through book arts, um, which was totally my passion as an undergraduate, I went straight into graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where they have like a book arts program in printmaking. Um, of course, as soon as I was in that program, I felt like I didn't want to do that anymore. And so right. then I was happily still in a very loose program that allowed me to go in all different directions. So I was doing painting and drawing was sort of the content of my MFA. Um, and then I was done with school, all of that school, by the time I was, you know, 24, I guess. So I, I feel like then I got to ask myself outside of the framework of academia what I wanted to do. Right, right. And that's, of course, I, it's the same narrative for so many people. That's sort of where the work begins. Right, right. You know, after you've, you know, recovered from all of the intervention that you experience in school. Well, and, so, you know, and, and I'm, uh, you know, I can easily get into tangents, too, but I mean, I think that that whole life experience, especially, is such a thing that you miss. You know? Oh, my just, God. Like, yeah. it's just not, a, a, you know, it's, um, it's such a vacuum to just kind of be making work without any... Yeah. Um, dare I say it, passion without sounding silly, but you know what I mean? Just nothing where you're like, I mean, just kind of, um, I don't know, just to kind of really be inspired by just something that's simple. And I think maybe kind of getting to, to something that you're talking about in terms of two. Um, so, I mean, like his location then been something that's helped inform some of that earlier stuff? Cause he talked a little yeah, bit about like, huge. you know, woods and, and yeah, yeah. In, in an invisible way, right? Like in the same way that you don't, when you're in academia, it's invisible the ways in which it's totally meddling with your studio practice. But once you get away from it and looking back, just hindsight, essentially there's, it, it becomes so clear that kind of intervention and what it is. And the same is true of locations and I've moved a lot. So um, I was in Ohio for undergrad in Wisconsin for grad school. I then moved to New Mexico and started a letterpress printing business with a friend of mine uh, and did that for about a year and a half. And it was there that I started doing these little kind of sculptures that felt like they were from nowhere. Um, and uh, like an incredible uh, confidence in just making three-dimensional work, which I had never taken a sculpture class and never, never honored that part of my interest in school. So that I, I feel like New Mexico in that environment had a lot to do with that shift. And I can't even say in clear ways why or how, but um, that landscape and something about the rawness of that place made three-dimensional work seem very appealing to me. Um, and then another place where I, I really felt that I could see how I was being shaped by a location was when I spent a year in Korea, too, just in terms of, um, like, fluorescent colors that came into my work, just in terms of a palette, let's say, of um, my immediate environment. Every time I'm living in New England, I feel like my work is kind of blue-black and sort of um, very um, structural or something, very... Uh, yeah, very unemotional. But right. in other places that I've been, it's it's a very different land, you know, very different impulse, I think, in the studio. So, uh, yeah, 
Well, and it's interesting because I, you know, I wondered then how much of that too is just, um, just the new, you know, being in a new location yeah. or something that right. you, you kind of see as new, um, which is funny because even with, with what I do, um, and something that I'm not particularly working from directly anymore is just pure like housing, but like being, being in different places and especially traveling through different places recently, like I have been, like I started yeah. getting reinvested into things that I had kind of long forgotten just because of things I don't know, things that can become stale, like depending on where you're yeah. driving through or commuting through or you right. know, even if it's just walking through or riding a bike through. I don't know. Yeah, and um, I think that becomes a separate addiction, actually, that that wonderful exhilaration of landing in a new place and making do and starting to make work, you know, without all the trappings of your familiar studio. And I feel like myself and together with my husband and our kids, we've been in motion now, you know, almost nonstop since 07. So we've been in so many different locations. Like it's, it's incredible. And now, you know, we're trying to land. we really are trying to land. And, um, maybe we're just landing, maybe we're just making a launch pad. Maybe our, it's a home base that we cycle back to, but we continue our movement or something. But it's, it's now hard for me to know what it means to just be in one place and not be curious about all those um, uh, that, that exhilarating and fresh kind of shift that happens when you're in a new environment. So. Sure. Sure. And, and I guess to, to kind of tie back into the work a little bit too, something that I, that I was kind of curious about then. Yeah. Um, so, cause, cause I want to do, I do want to kind of like get in a little bit more depth, especially to, to some of the later MFA work to see how that yeah. kind of relates to what you do now. But, um, in terms of, uh, like the abstraction or the mark making and, I don't know, just kind of being in that mode of working. I mean, is that something that's always then been a part of your studio practice? I mean, did you, I mean, it's certainly I would imagine that you might've been uh, stuck like a lot of people um, in a, in a drawing one class where you're drawing the fruit and, you know, uh, yeah. getting all that down. But I mean, was that, was that something then even like as a, as like a later BFA student or like an MFA student, was that something that's always been, um, you know, like that formal language that you've been kind of developing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that was the anchor at the beginning, you know, feeling like I was someone that could draw what I saw. And so that was developing that formal ability. It's sort of like if you're learning to, if you're learning ceramics, you want to be able to center your pot and throw like a really perfect pot before you maybe intentionally don't care about that stuff anymore. Right, right. You know? So I think it was that analogous kind of. Well, and, and I mean, I guess just to be kind of curious too, because I mean, it's, it seems like, you know, especially because I've got, I've got your, your webpage, uh, cycling through here. Yeah. Um, so I'm seeing, especially to all, all those images kind of going through too, and just thinking about what I know of your work even 10 years ago now. And I'm, and I'm just yeah. thinking about that language, but I mean, what, um, is there anything like, like, is it still kind of more of that idea of not, not being a concrete thing, just like this thing that's pulling you towards towards this and then just kind of, I guess, committing to it and kind of investigating it like this formal yeah, language. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I've described this before as, um, it's like a, it's sort of like a 10th or 20th generation Xerox, but you're getting instead of further away from the thing, you're getting closer to the center of something. I mean, I think that's the perfect description. I think in my year, before I, I moved to Korea, I was um, teaching, and it was sort of my earliest formal academic job. I was in my late 20s, and I was teaching at Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. And I left to do this fellowship in Korea, during which time I was just in the studio working. And it was the moment that I really 
was able to see the, the negative effects of academia on my work because I felt like what I was doing was very didactic. I, it was almost as if I was making work with the narrative of the making of the work in mind. And even though it wasn't a really dominant, explicit part of the piece, there was some way in which it was anchored in explanation. And what I really came to see in the work that I was admiring of my friends in Korea was this total um, freedom from explanation and comfort with the intuitive realm. Okay, and I, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but for me, it I really gained the confidence to not know what I was doing when I was there, and and to really honor intuitive impulse, even like to talk about it as an impulse and not a decision. And so, I think to follow up on what you were just asking, I think in my own work, especially since then, which again is you know roughly ten years ago, then mm-hmm. I feel like. I've at least encouraged myself, I'm not sure I've been successful at this, but have certainly encouraged myself to do just that, to sort of follow an impulse and follow it further and take it to the next step and then at a certain point stop and sort of see what I have and and maybe think about it, but but mostly just kind of going forward through impulse. Sure, sure. Well, and it's interesting too, just because I and kind of part of this is I, I don't know, I always wind up having to think about especially who I'm talking to and how that relates to things that I, that I've kind of learned. And it's kind of yeah. interesting because I can, I can understand being in that, 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 you know, cause that's yeah. what I was into for a while. And it's weird because like, I look at it as like, for me, like the, my liberation worked away from that intuitive thing. Like I think oh, that huh. by kind of defining things for me, it's kind of made it easier to access those things. So I think it kind of really speaks to that idea that really is like a, like a particular thing for the ways that, that people find to work, you know? Yes. Oh, you definitely. Know? Um, right. cause even the things that seem to be completely opposite might be the same Yeah. in that regards, you know? No, exactly. Because I think as an artist, I'm someone that rushes towards conclusion. I'm not someone that can easily be suspended in, in a lack of resolution. Mm-hmm. And, and I really admire artists that can do that, you know, that really allow themselves to be in this murky place and find something that comes out of it, but not even necessarily define that thing that's coming out of the murk. Whereas, um, so, so indeed, I think that the, I have to counsel myself to sort of take those risks and to be in that unknown, suspended in the unknown, because it's a place of real discomfort. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and so then to kind of get specific, we can start then like like maybe around that time then in terms of your your residency or your experience in, in Seoul. I mean, yeah. what, what was that like to just kind of? Because I remember too, uh, a decade ago now, you talking about it as just being just kind of walking away from from that one part of your life that you know what I mean that maybe yeah. maybe many younger artists like myself are kind of wanting to have that that kind of stability. Um, yeah. So I mean, obviously, aside from just addressing walking away from that and kind of being scary, but then also being something that could kind of, um, you know, push your work. I mean, what was it like then too, in terms of being immersed in such a weird environment, like, like, but, but formally, you know what I mean? In terms of like, how, how did this work in relationship to your work? Not just in terms of like a liberation in terms of the way that you can just kind of work through it. But I mean, what were the visual things that you were, you were kind of really drawn to in, in that experience? And yeah, I mean, I I applied for that fellowship because I felt that I was too young to be thinking about permanence in academia, 
and that I felt almost anesthetized by the idea of this, you know, direct deposit paycheck and this, this life that was forming around that set of circumstances. So I applied to go there and indeed that was pretty, um, pretty stressful at the beginning to be kind of alone in this country where the language was so impossible for me to grasp. And it was just as a general climate of that year, it was probably the loneliest year of my life. And, um, I felt like I touched the outer edges of like a real extreme loneliness that I edges that I don't want to come in contact with again, Mm -hmm. but I feel the immense privilege of having touched them. And, um, I made some very deliberate decisions when I got there early on, uh, one of which was to not befriend the expat community there and to not get involved in an English speaking community there. So that of course enhanced my loneliness, but it also meant that I, I, I might have made a greater effort because of it to get to know um, some Korean friends who I met just by seeing their work and shows and then pursuing them. Mm-hmm. And from those relationships, um, I have like really lasting, incredible friendships and great collaborations have come from that too. Um, so people that I've been back to Korea probably three times now and um, I continue those friendships. I see those people still. Um, so that was really great. But in terms of the actual context of my work there, I mean, I was so lonely. I was just in my own space and then taking long walks through Seoul. So I was getting a lot of um, sort of feedback from the urban environment itself. And I think, as you recall, the slideshow that you're talking about was just me starting to really appreciate this spirit of do-it-yourself on the streets of Seoul and this funny way that people would, you know, like mend things with tape or, you know, wire their own homes or just do all of these just incredibly makeshift feeling um, solutions in their lives. And I love the spirit of that, the imperfection, the lack of a specialist needed to, you know, get yourself internet or, or electricity or anything that you needed. So I, I think that along with this, you know, being counseled in the realm of intuition sort of produced a whole kind of feeling, a whole um, sensibility, I guess, that in, informed my work there. Um, I'm not sure if that really answered the question as you were thinking about it, Dave. So no, I think I think it does. Me. I think it does. But I, and I yeah. think it kind of gives to something else too that you know again because um, you know I know that material is something that, that that winds up becoming apparent too. So I mean, was there like a shift at all in terms of you know you talking about having this a bit more of like a printmaking background and being in graduate school and then kind of deciding to move away from that in terms of the materials? I mean. Are you still yeah. pretty much tri- sticking with more traditional kind of materials, or have you started to really like expand it was a real, at this point? Yeah, it was a real hybrid there. I had access to this incredible handmade, like, Kozo paper that was in sheets that were, like, you know, four and a half by seven or something, you know, at feet, I mean, like, really gigantic, incredible sheets of paper. And so one of the things I was doing was using, like, Korean brushes, I just the art supplies that I could find there, and working with gouache on these huge pieces of paper to create these um, comic strips, as I thought of them, of thought bubbles. So it was just these totally silent, 
like thought after thought after thought, kind of turning over a really small rock in your hand. Not literally. I, I mean, taking an idea and just kind of turning it, thinking about it, turning it, thinking about it. So these visual ideas. Um, that So that was sort of more in the realm of traditional materials, maybe, um, sort of more conventionally beautiful materials. Mm-hmm. And it's true, I think, that I came to appreciate alongside, like, neon colors and neon itself, like plastic and other sorts of materials that were very much in a both grotesque and beautiful way present in the environment there. So I do think that that aided in a, in a kind of reappraisal of the aesthetic um, parameters that I had set in a material sense. Yeah, definitely. Well, and, and so, I mean, um, how about this for a fun question then in relationship to that? I mean, cause, cause we can certainly talk about like successes and, and, you know, would love some examples of, of how that started to diverge. Cause like, I think again, I was, I was saying that you, I remember, I remember that like, especially at the time, um, I think it was right around the time that the, uh, like William Kintridge was, was really yeah. hot and, and especially yeah. those animations. And I, I think yeah. I even remember you kind of going on and on about, well, you know what I mean? Like kind of being like, whoa, is there, you know, really crazy. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and I remember some kind of like video work that you were making that way too. Um, so I mean, yeah. like in, in terms of other like time-based media, um, is that, is that so, something that, I mean, you, you just kind of, how do you, I don't know, how do you decide like what to go into and then maybe like a couple of success things and at least one just complete and utter failure that you, you Oh, we're like, God, I'm going to try doing this with materials. So gigantic, <laughs> Dave. Jesus. Um, yeah. How do you decide? How do you decide what to do? I I don't know how you decide. I mean, I I I guess I I loved about those Kentridge films that the rawness of the drawing, but but coming to life, your decision making coming to life, almost like a ghost of everything that you you were thinking about throughout the whole process sort of suddenly evident like a skeleton you know on a page or something that it was just simply sort of recognizing how different drawing was in that context that made me want to make those animations and I didn't end up going very deep or very far with them I mean I I didn't do a whole lot more than just the experiments that I did there uh, during that residency right right but but it's still kind of it, it remains an area that I think is incredible, um, but just not maybe what I need to be doing right now. Well, right, and I think it yeah. kind of gets back to that idea, even with something that I was talking about, like kind of like trying something out and then kind of realizing, yeah. like, yeah, this is you can you can like you can really admire something and love something and it not be the thing that you're yeah. particularly driven to do. Or at least at I the mean, time. I guess but, I would but, say but like, as an as an overarching um, fact in my work is that. I don't feel my identity threatened by different materials and processes. I feel that there's a sameness. And I I think essentially it's a truth. I think we are all like consistent throughout different materials and and efforts in our lives. We are who we are. We can't be any other way, right? But I I definitely benefit from the exploration of different materials. And any chance I have, like if I'm on a college campus, to delve into studios that I don't normally get a chance to – get into, I mm-hmm. do it because I'm still not convinced that there, I, I, I still believe that there are probably materials and processes in the world that I have not explored yet that could potentially better communicate what I'm trying to do than what I already know. I guess it's a kind of confidence in the unknown to possibly be more fruitful than the known. 
And so I, I guess I, I go at those things and, um, and I do try as much as I can in, in different ways. Um, and sometimes it's confusing right now. My, my total obsession, I would practically say with ceramics is potentially upending every other, you know, fine art effort in my life right now. And I don't know if it's, you know, classic midlife crisis kind of scenario or, or if it's just something I need to really pay attention to. So, um, maybe a new leaf is turning over. I don't know. Well, and, you know, and again, I mean, partially, like, I think it's interesting to be talking about this in terms of then also like the way that you're processing this, because obviously like, you know, it's, it's not necessarily going to be easy for someone to, um, cycle through the last 10 years of your work the same way that they might be able to come to your website and to kind of see how all of those things wound up, I don't know, turning into something else. Yeah. And so I think that's especially why I'm really interested in that idea, because it, it seems like especially too that idea of that just kind of being immersed in all these different kinds of materials might be that kind of route. So, I mean, are there yeah. times then where you've got like your hands in 10 different, different types of things and then times where you're then focusing, you know, like I, I've got these, I've got, the, I'm going to do these, these prints, I'm going to do these sculptures. I mean, does it work like that or is it always just kind of a mishmash or I, yeah, I don't it, know. It, it's generally, I would say, a mishmash, except in the cases where I've signed up for some massive installation and my studio is co-opted by that monster for a little while and I can't do anything else. But I would say I prefer, and you know, it really comes back to, I guess, insecurity. Like, I'm never sure of an idea in any particular form. So if I can think about that idea and do a print that's sort of going in that direction, a sculpture that reflects some of those same ideas, and then maybe there's a photograph that comes from the two things, then I feel like I, I there's more substance to the thought. So I guess it really is like um, I, I've learned that there's specifically fruitful outcomes to going between things because I'm never assured of, of what, I'm, what I'm doing. Right, right. Well, and, and again, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's so fitting to have you on. I don't know why 25 seems like it's a significant number because it's just around, I guess it's just yeah. a quarter of a hundred. Right. You know, I right. mean, I guess that's why we subscribe, you know, like some kind of value to it. But it's just interesting to hear you say that because, I mean, really, like it was during that time that you were at ISU. And again, this yeah. might probably be more personal for me, but I mean, it's just like, you know, like I hear what you're saying in terms of that because, I mean, I was literally just trying to come up with some really awful, um, like representation of a print that I did. And I was never a good printmaker, but like just doing like a visual representation in the MS paint program or something like that. And you know, there's that little thing of sending this really awful bitmap image off to somebody was maybe that thing that shifted everything for me. That's so cool. Cause I mean, it just become, and instead of looking at something being a flat abstraction, it became like a rep, like a representational landscape, even though it was a really removed one at that. But I mean, like that little kind of change, but I mean, it really kind of, I think for me anyway, like I really can respond to that easily. Cause I mean, I don't know that I'd be doing what I, what I'd be doing now if I never took printmaking, you know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Um, Right. That's so neat. There's like some way that we have to aerate our own soil, you know? And I guess for me, it's, it's that, it's that movement through different forms that is my aerating part. Right, right. Well, and, and so, I mean, too, I mean, obviously then you're, you're kind of expanding that language that you're kind of working with into these other, other 
other ways of experiencing it too. Yeah. Um, and so I guess I should say then too, in terms of, um, you know, I mean, we can talk, we've talked a little bit about the, the, the more traditional side of things, but I mean, um, are there any other things that maybe I'm missing like in between that span? Cause again, it's such a big span of <laughs> what I'm missing, you know what I mean? And I've seen things right. here and there, but I mean like, um, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to find out like what, what leads into, um, especially like all these, all these, this plastic endeavor, you know, uh, all, all of this, um, yeah. uh, plastic stuff or these inflatables or, or the way that you're, um, I don't know, like I, I, and maybe I'm going to just jump right into it, but like, I, cause I'm sitting here looking at these things cycling through it and I'm seeing these sculptures, yeah. especially, um, but the ones that are kind of like these linear ones that are blown up and I'm just kind of like, they look like oh, yeah. these, they look like these drawings that are the, they look like these 3d drawings to me. Yeah. You know what right. I mean? Like in, in terms of relationship to like all of the drawings that I've seen cycling through and just the familiar, you know, the work that I'm familiar yeah. with it, there too. So, I mean, um, right. what, how did you wind up getting to, to those, those plastic pieces? Yeah. I mean, I, I think because I'm, I'm, I, I do work in a lot of different media, but I'm a very low tech person. It's not like I, I know elaborate craft at all, probably in any direction. But so because I'm interested in these sort of transparent, latticed, three dimensional forms, I'm always trying to devise new ways that I can actually make them, you know, without knowing how to weld, you know, rods of steel or um, without knowing how or having the patience to carve something elaborate out of a piece of wood or, you know, et cetera. So one of the ways that I was thinking is just if I have clear plastic, then that'll basically be invisible. But if I hold it together with tape, then it'll have form. And it's just this very rudimentary way that I was imagining being able to create the effect of a lattice suspended kind of form. And then the plastic itself, of course, reared its lovely, slightly horrible head. And I, um, you know, started appreciating also the colors and the patterns and, and then lo and behold, and in a way this chases what we were just talking about before this, the fact that these inflatable forms had a life cycle of their own that was totally beyond my control, like, uh, slumping overnight and being just as kind of intriguing to me as the slumped form as a full form. Right. Then this kind of in between that I feel like I benefit from in my work was suddenly becoming part of the work itself. Like a piece that doesn't rest, you know, like a, a piece that's in a constant state of agitation. Suddenly that seemed like that's where the, the learning is for me, you know, um, to be deliberately making these pieces over which I have only so much control, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, it developed from those little, those little balloons, um, that I, and that was also a period of time when we were living abroad and, um, you know, I, I didn't travel with my studio, so I was just making do with what I found. And right, it was right. another one of those kind of isolated, cool moments. Sure, sure. Well, and I, I think something that really, like, that's something that's so interesting to me about art is that, you know, you can, you can be limited to these, these bare things, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you wind up right. coming up with these things that are really amazing. And, and again, I mean, um, to kind of even get back to where I was starting this morning, just because of the, the mental sphere that I'm kind of being brought into and stuff like that. I think it's something that, again, it's so hard to, how do you explain that to someone, you know, like, you can do all of these amazing things. Here's, here's some duct right. tape and, you know, MacGyver it, you know? Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think, I think it's, it just comes out, you know what I mean? It seems like that, that's how it winds up coming to be, I guess, in, in a, in a, in a weird way. 
Um, yeah. But how do you how do you decide then? Um, I guess when when you're done working on something, then too. Um, I mean, is that some? Um, and I, gosh, I, I, maybe through this podcast, I can figure out. I, I heard this story once about somebody that had sold like a painting um, to someone and then broken into their house like ten or fifteen years later to like rework it. Um, <laughs> so awesome. I don't. I don't know if this will ever happen. And it maybe just if you've learned anything about memory, it maybe it never happened and I made it yeah. up, which would be pretty cool. But um, yeah, how do you? So how? I mean. You know what I mean? Because I, I, I would imagine, too, I mean, a lot of it could be dictated then if you're going to be in a particular place for a certain amount of time to kind of keep right. working these things. Um, well, I mean, I, th- I think for the smaller things that happen in the studio, which is really the kind of private work, it's I, I think it's the more honest work. It's the work that um, I'm not sure about all the way through, and so it tends to have a kind of freshness about it. Um, that... Um, where was I going with that? I, I guess I, I don't ever know when it's finished. I think it's just a matter of physical exhaustion um, when the idea sort of runs out of new things coming. But with the big installations, obviously, it's always a much more concrete, premeditated set of circumstances, um, set of limitations, and sense of completion. You know, so I, I would say that with that work, it, it's almost too, too clear and with the work that ultimately is probably more important to me and more important to my process, it, it it's it's only maybe a few years out that I even look at any of those things as being worthwhile. Mm-hmm. You know, in the moment of making them, I'm like, is this something that's interesting on, unto itself, or is this just something I want to draw, or is this just something that I should photograph, or, or is this just something that becomes a negative, you know? like a physical thing that I'm going to make like a light print out of. Right. You know, like I never know what it is. So, so in terms of the finish, I, I, but I've always loved, I, it was Jim Dine that said this, he was a visiting artist in Walla Walla when I was teaching there. And I just remember someone asking him like, when do you know when something's finished? And he's like physical exhaustion. Right. You know, I mean, just using that as your limitation, that's so awesome. Right, right. It's not, it's so often not, not a, a, a moment. It's like something else that kind of diverts your attention or something. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, again, even kind of relating this then back to that academic sense, I mean, it's it's hilarious because you're talking about, like, a couple of years, and I get really self-conscious. I have, I, I developed a three-day rule. Like to determine if, like I, like if I was that uncomfortable with something, I, I try to wait three days before I'm just like that's awful. Um, <laughs> but that's not a lot of time. Um, but but it's interesting because I mean they kind of be put it in put it in that context of I don't know maybe maybe that's just part of the the cultural like problem of living in such a fast time is that everybody expects it to be done to be figured out in three days yeah. as opposed to a couple of years. Um, and I mean, maybe that's something that's an extension of that that academia that you're trying to you're trying to solve this very complex thing very simply right. and very quickly and effectively, and then move on to some other interesting body of work as opposed to then just really kind of developing that language, which I think yeah. is something that we've kind of talked about. This is really difficult to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, don't know, I think yeah, I, I agree. I, I, and this is what I. This is exactly why I like. The, the idea of studio break and these conversations is because I, I like this, you know, I like these yeah, conversations. Right. Um, I'm just kind of curious what kind of reaction 
you wind up getting then from people that, that would, would come upon it in that, that fashion, I mean, or what, what you want them to experience in terms of seeing it? Gosh, that's hard. I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty ungenerous about audiences. I, I don't necessarily always care if people want to go along with me. So I, I'm not sure how much, and especially as I increasingly am living in these totally isolated places, um, I, I'm not living in a community that I'm getting response for from, or or that I'm looking for a response from. Um, so um, I, I don't. I almost don't know how to answer that, which is probably sort of weird. But I, I guess um, I I felt. What, I mean, just to use those little inflatable balloons as an ongoing example, I think as I was making them, like I said, I didn't know if they were just going to be something I was going to draw or if they were sort of interesting unto themselves. And um, at the time, we were living in Rome at the American Academy in Rome. My husband had a fellowship there. And so um, we were in a community of people, some of whom were artists, all of whom were in the humanities in some way. Um, and there, there were people that would cycle through our studio and um, make comments. And I, I do think that other voices helped me to take them more seriously than I was taking them myself, I guess. But, um, uh, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't think about it too much. Right, right. Um, so... And again, we, I've only got a handful of things left, and I know you're, you're kind of pressed for time, but again, it's just one of those things, especially I think that I learned that you can get really animated into a conversation just because you kind of exchange all these ideas. But um, Yeah. Um, so in what ways do you think that, um, I guess, the idea of research then kind of relates to what you do now then? And I know that I've talked to a number of people that, that talk, this, talk about this, not only just in a you know, just that academic sense of this reading, but, um, but especially kind of looking and kind of being, I don't know, in tune, I guess, with what other, what other kind of research there is. So, I mean, is there any particular things that you kind of draw from? Well, I, it's funny, but I would say that my research is really more philosophical at this point, because what I'm interested in understanding about my own work and partly what drives it forward and drives a lot of the decision-making in my life towards what it is, is the question of honesty in what I'm doing. I mean, I, I think I'm a little bit curious about that whole scenario of being on a desert island and what do you make then, you know? Do you make anything if you're there? You know, wh to what extent are we dependent on these frameworks, these art world frameworks to um, help us generate work? And to what extent is it an isolated, separate impulse that we have as people to do that? And in a way, I think getting into ceramics is coming back to those primary human impulses. I mean, some of our oldest objects, like handmade objects that exist, um, human-made objects are clay. And I'm fascinated by that first impulse. Obviously, we live in a time where we don't have to know how to make our functional things in our environment, right? So, but we have a kind of human impulse to need to make. But I'm curious about what it felt like to need to have to make your functional things. And, and then beyond the functional, the impulse to make something symbolic or spiritual or, you know, I don't know what, mm -hmm. decorative, let's say. 
And so uh, there's, I guess, in this category of research, which maybe I'm, I'm looking at too broadly, I feel very interested in the project of discerning the, in, the elements that, that inflect my work from the exterior, um, from the outside, and the elements that are somehow native to myself, to my just human, just being human. And it's, that I think is increasingly my project. Um, you know, it, it's a huge privilege, obviously, to ever in our lives, just because we're so um, tethered to needing to make money and all of these other things. I've got two kids as well. To it, we're, It's a huge privilege to ever stop as an adult at a certain point and ask yourself the question, like, how, how do you want to live and how do you want to die? You know, like those are, that's really the center of it. And I feel like because my husband and I have both managed to sort of share fellowships and, and create larger open spaces for ourselves to, to, to ask these questions, I've had this great privilege of, of wondering. And I think at this point in my life, those philosophical questions are really um, at the root of kind of what I'm up to. Right, right. So. Gosh, it's, it's super interesting. Um, it's, it's weird. Well, and well, but, uh, maybe I'm just an old old person already. Even when you met me, but I mean, um, I don't know. I think those things. I think those are things are always just important, you know. Yeah. Because um, you can, because especially because you can easily be wrapped up in things that are, well, just not as important in that regards. You know, yeah. kind of getting that basic idea, that basic way of, of looking at things, or yeah. you know, the, the pared down, the simple, you know. Yeah. Um, which is which is interesting because I mean. Um, which is one one of the things that I never that I don't still really understand about like the idea of having um, just an just a endless amount of money and not necessarily having I guess something that I'm trying to use it for to contribute to some kind of greater good. Right. Um, I don't know. And again, it might be a little abstract, but I guess it's kind of it's kind of where <laughs> I'm at this morning. But um, right. it kind of does right. serve to lead into a little bit of something too, though. Um, so one of the things that I like asking people, and I guess usually it's more um, of an academic kind of question, but I mean, how do you um, how do you encourage other people to kind of make? Because I'm, I'm guessing you're definitely somebody that does, and obviously, you know, even talking about make, you know doing handmade candles way back when, I mean, is something right. that encourages people to make. But um, yeah. is that something that you're still pretty active with, aside from just being a, a you know a mom and having having yeah, kids that I you mean, might foster that in? Yeah, to the extent that I'm ever in a situation with people anymore where I'm in that role of being encouraging, which is more like a teaching role, I would say. Right. Um, I, of course, I, I just think that it's part of the brain that if it's like a muscle that you want to exercise, you know, and, um, and it helps to expand your vocabulary, I think, to exercise it. But I, I don't indeed because of my background possibly or just because of who I am I I I, I think making in in any way obviously is is worthwhile um, you know no no matter what the context or outlet or anything material whatever um, so so yeah I I think especially right now on our planet I guess where our future is so uncertain. You know, I mean, it's always uncertain, right? But somehow right. it feels more cataclysmically uncertain. I I feel like the creative 
um, being fluent in a, in a creative sense is one of the most important skills that we can have. I mean, I, I actually think it's probably the most important thing for kids to have in their education is a, is a comfort with approaching the unknown. So to the extent that creative process and um, maybe making's part of it, but maybe it's not making, actually. Maybe it's just a kind of openness about thinking and approaching uh, unfamiliar terrain. Um, and problem solving within, like, on the go, like improvisation. Right, right, right. And that's really, really important. Right, and, and not just having a, an answer that most people agree on. Right. You know what I mean? And that's it. <laughs> um, right. I can't, well, and, and again, there was something, um, um, oh man, of course I'm going to not remember this. Uh, Ken Robinson, I think is his name. Who, oh, who does yes. talks about education, but he has that. Oh my God, he's so amazing! That paperclip thing is is something that I want to do for like my foundation students is just to have them try to come up with as many uses for a paperclip as they can. That's so. And it kind of outlines in that talk like that. Progressively, people just lose that ability to think outside of that box. Where yeah. whereas again, I mean, I think that idea of creativity and being able to problem solve and yeah. Um, yeah, not necessarily just to be able to make something, but just be open to possibilities yeah. is such an important thing. Right. Um, I think we're really, we're so fearful of the unknown now that we're tethered by, you know, cell phones and so many other devices to a constant, I don't know, there's, there's a constant, as a parent, like constantly checking in on your child, you know, <laughs> these poor children, they have no freedom. Um, and it's all, you know, what's going to happen if it's like this, this predictive um, this dark prediction, constant dark darkness, um, well, to not I, believe that things are going to work out for the best or something. I don't know. I don't, well, and it's interesting, and I, I, I'll move on really quickly, but it reminds me of a, a bit that George Carlin had um, where he was asking if kids, do kids, just, do kids even know what a stick is anymore? Like in terms <laughs> of just like, you know... And it just kind of right. goes on about like you know you know when, when I was a kid you went in the backyard and you dug a hole you know <laughs> with a stick um, but it's just interesting because all those those all those all that information coming at you um, yeah. which is again a perfect interlude into this next question um, favorite non art distractions oh yeah pretty open. Um, yeah. You were talking a little bit earlier about, I believe, gardening or something of that nature, or I, I was just refer- I think metaphorically, I was talking about gardening. Oh, okay. I mean, when I have a chance, I do that. <laughs> but we've been moving so much that hasn't been part of my life at all. I, I guess music a little bit, which I've gotten more into being living in this totally rural place, um, uh, and. Um, what else? Um, uh, my kids are a constant source of non-artistic uh, input and research for me. Um, I, I mean, the, the, the thing is, my interests go in a lot of different directions, but I don't, not specific subject areas. Right. Um, well, and again, this is definitely so, one of those questions that isn't necessarily, yeah. a, a, you know, one that... Um, I don't know. I've had a lot of silly answers, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, not silly, yeah. but one of my friends, Ben Gardner, um, who I'll give a little bit of a, um, hi, how are you? Um, um, <laughs> he, so he, he's managed to watch apparently all of Law and Order, which uh-huh. I don't even know how many seasons of that is, but again, it's, it's interesting to know what people wind up doing, you know, like I've yeah. been, I've been really getting into these, um, Commonwealth Club of, uh, uh San Francisco talks. 
and they're just like every week. So it seems like it seems like there's stuff all the time, and the player for it kind of just keeps getting recycled. Yeah. And so like I'm just listening to somebody talk about you know the dangers of this or that. And then it goes yeah. on to like somebody talking about from like the biggest lobbying firm of you know the world and you know how right. great it is and I don't know I just wind up getting all these different perspectives that way so I'm just yeah. kind of curious that's why I was asking you know just like things that I don't know I mean especially me yeah. like I've been I, I got into coffee roasting <laughs> you know <laughs> that's which great. which is really great I mean it's for that's somebody important. that likes coffee anyway I, would say, but, I I think that's really important Dave the coffee roasting. Um, but actually to answer your question, I do sort of have an answer, but it's just, I didn't think of it cause it goes the opposite direction of mm-hmm. sort of probably what, what I thought you would want to hear. Right. Um, which is just that I'm constantly looking for silence. Actually. I feel like my life is so full and so structured and, um, it, it's, it's like those rare instances where I, I'm deliberately emptying out my brain. That, that is really, when I can find a moment to do that, that that's what I spend my chips on <laughs> in my free time. It's just kind of, yeah, quiet, being quiet. Okay. So maybe I picked a good place being up here. I don't know. Um, um, <laughs> well, but I've got, to, it's like there's too much material all the time. And maybe I have a low threshold, but I just, uh, I, I have a hard time taking in too much at once. Right. So. Well, and again, I've only got a couple of things here left, um, but um, I, I've always liked to ask people to, like, um, and a little bit moving away from your work and then kind of going back towards your work, but um, are there anything, any things, any particular shows or anything that you've seen, I guess, in the near past that you're drawn from, aside from your, your own your own stuff, or are you just that in it, you know? You know, um, I'm putting that in parentheses for people that can't, that won't see video of this in it, you know, being yeah. in, in your work, I guess. Um, you know, again, I, I don't get out to see a whole lot, um, especially where I'm living right now. Um, um, well, and maybe that could be something that you could talk about a little bit too. Where, where are you living at right now? Cause <laughs> my, well, because my, my last question is really going to be kind of pertaining to a little bit of that piece um, and then asking you kind of what's coming up, but especially that inflatable yeah. piece that you're going on. But where are you yeah. at right now? Because um, it sounds like you're on top of a like a mountain in a little cabin. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I Okay, we're, we're living on an island that's um, on, in the Bay of Fundy um, on the Canadian border in Maine. And, um, it's a town called Eastport and it's a population of 1300 in this town. So, um, it's really small. Um, there's a causeway that connects you to the mainland. So it's not an island in the sense that you have to get on a boat to go anywhere. Um, but it still very much has that mentality, um, in terms of the people who are here. Um, and it's a, it's a port town. Um, so there's a lot of fishing. It's sort of too far, I guess, down east in Maine for the um, tourism to be a big factor here. So, mm-hmm. like, it's a real working port, a lot of lobster fishing and scallop and just straight-up fishing. Um, and it's a it's one of the most economically depressed counties in the nation. Um, it's it's pretty, um, pretty gritty here. Um, so, 
Yeah. I mean, I've been based in Portland, Maine for the last 10 years, roughly, like just since I, I met you. Mm-hmm. And um, that's been a kind of launch pad, you know, during all of our moving around. Um, but we were, were thinking of shifting it up here. So Canada comes into view. Um, and, uh, you know, usually our maps don't really acknowledge that there's anything on the other side of the border. But now I feel very interested in, in you know, what's going on in Canada in the arts and um, how different it is, the feeling of it, that community. Right. Um, so, yeah, well, we're really far out. It's like two and a half hours to the nearest airport. Um, we're like four and a half hours drive from Portland, Maine. Um, another, yeah, I mean, we're just really exceedingly isolated. So a lot of the, the sorts of things that you would do naturally in an urban place, like sure. see shows and, and right. be sort of involved in that, is just not even part of my landscape right now. Right, right. Um, uh, not to say that I'm not, I'm not interested, but it's, it's really other things have filled those spaces, I think. Sure, sure. Here. Well, and again, I mean, I think it's... Um kind of gets back to that idea of just being a, um, well, just being an, you know, really, really committing to that life. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. again, I think, I mean, if I really count the number of people, uh, on my hand that can do that, yeah. there are very few, um, right. cause everybody's, everybody's wind up finding these, these interests or these things that wind up filling up your time, even if it's roasting coffee or right. You right. Know, spending the time to make tortillas. Um, oh yes, which right. I, which I hope that's something that you're still doing. Um, oh my god! Um, but Not my, very often, but that's a good <laughs> idea. Well, maybe there could be a tortilla shop or yes, maybe a right. stand because they. I, can I have know, a cart down by the you know the wharf. <laughs> well, being spending a number of time, a number of years in, in in the place that I have, I, I I'm very familiar with the the little corn like huts that you see on the side of the road or like fruit oh, huts, yeah. which are kind of cool. So maybe. Maybe there could be potential for that. Um, yeah, but, right. but my my last thing, I guess, is is you know just kind of just questioning or asking you know what what you have coming up, but but also just because I think it's such an interesting piece, and and I, I'm planning on putting up a you know a link to it um, um, to maybe talk a little bit about the the piece that you just finished, the the inflatable, the yeah um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's called Collapse. Okay. I think that one, um, yeah, it really is actually a reprise of the piece that I did in Seattle last summer, um, which was called Bloom. And um, it's kind of like a many-limbed uh, inflatable flower thing um, that when it inflates, it turns into a perfect sphere of arms reaching in all directions. And then when it deflates, it's kind of like this Louise Bourgeois kind of lump of folded up arms, um, very asymmetrical. So it, and it's on a timer, so it's constantly in flux. Like, you know, all of the inflatable pieces seem to be. Um, and there's, there's some kind of special moment when it inflates and all the arms go up perfectly and you recognize for the first time that, that there's like geometric strategy here. And then when the arms, the blower kicks off and then all the arms start falling and the plastic makes this great, like, rain sound um that's really the moment for me in that piece um it's always when i'm collaborating with forces i have no control over that i feel like i gained something Mm -hmm. um and that that's that moment it's almost like an emotional moment more than anything else um with that the last time i i did that similar form 
um, it was in bright pink plastic, and I had uh, carved a, a, like a 16 by 16 foot square wood block to go with it. Um, and I, I have to say, I missed the wood block in this particular piece. I love the conversation between the inflatable form that was in constant flux and this woodblock, which was a, a depiction, sort of an iconic depiction of the same thing, but, but static, almost like a blueprint of the form. And I think that conversation is really more uh, a more living place for my work um, than the, the current sculpture. The current one is also part of a drawing show, and so very deliberately it, it was constructed to emphasize the, the lines of its own making, the, the tape that sort of lines all the different seams on it. And um, anyway, so I guess I was conflating the two by thinking of it as a drawing. I didn't right, feel right. like I needed the woodcut, but... Um, uh, yeah, that's been the most recent thing. Right, right. And as, uh, what, what I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of things on the docket, but is there anything that we should uh, look forward to checking out? I just keep trying to, to clear space so that there's nothing demanded of me, but I, it's hard to do that. <laughs> so I, I want to be able to tell you that there's nothing coming up. That's what I want you to should. Be. I don't know. You should just... Um, I don't know what a good strategy is for getting people to not... Um, like what you do and want to want to have other people see it but <laughs> no way. it's my my own fault but um i uh uh let's see i i'm doing a commission at the university of new hampshire for mm -hmm. a new building that's going in it's the first time that i'll be doing a permanent um sculpture in a in a building so that's no doubt going to have its challenges and um it's going to be very different than making work uh, of a more impermanent nature, I think it's going to be a real particular challenge for me. Sure. Um, so that's on the docket coming up. And then I just have this urge again to do a series of new dioramas that let me explore um, the illusion of gigantic on a small scale and thinking about little kinetic, possibly inflatable instances. I, I don't really, can't get more specific, but I, I love the diorama format as a way to both be working miniature and gigantic at the same time. And, um, so that, that might be coming up. Awesome. Awesome. Well, are you um, still there? I yes. I'm, I'm, I'm still here. Did it say I'm here? Oh, good. Oh, <laughs> um, um, all right. Well, um, I, that, that, that's, that, that's all I have, at least in terms of trying to fit in, in the amount of time that we have. So, um, it's been great chatting with you. Thanks, Dave. It was really fun. Thanks again to Anna for joining us today. Please check out her website, AnnaHepler.com, to see more work by her. And again, there's great videos and links to some of her installation pieces, and you can see them inflating and deflating. Very cool, so check that out. Music for today is Motown Junkies Lost in a Lonely Road. Again, you can find that by visiting freemusicarchive.org where you can find a whole bunch of other music that's free and downloadable. Please check it out. If you happen to like what you hear today, just remember you can visit studiobreak.com for a whole bunch of other artists' interviews where there's slideshows and links to each individual artist's work. And just remember, you can download the MP3 just via right-click and save target as, or you could go to the iTunes store and subscribe. Just search under Podcasts Studio Break, and you can subscribe there. Of course, if you happen to be on Facebook, you can become a fan and like Studio Break on Facebook, where you can get updates for new interviews. 
and just general interesting visual things to look at. So please like us there and leave us some feedback because, again, it can be a little lonely at times. If you don't happen to be fluent in all things David Linaway, you can visit my site, davidlinaway.com, to see what I do and the kind of paintings that I make. And our final announcement for today is that we're starting a new competition. So this competition will be open to recent MFA and BFA graduates. So fall of 2011, spring of 2012. The process is very simple. Ten images, one artist statement, all on the same PDF, submitted electronically. Deadline for this is going to be May 31st. Three winners from each category will receive not only an interview and feature on studiobreak.com, but will also be featured in an upcoming printed catalog featuring said artists. I'm really hoping that if we can share this opportunity with a lot of students out there, we're going to get a lot of great applications. If you'd like more specific information, please visit the Studio Break page on Facebook where you can download a PDF of the application. And if you have any questions about the process, just drop me an email at davidlinaway.com. And please, please share this opportunity with anybody that you think would be interested. I'm really looking forward to getting a lot of great applications and sharing a lot of interesting work. Hopefully some work that maybe some of you don't know about. And with that being said, hope you really enjoyed the program today, and we'll talk to you real soon.